The FT Weekend Podcast, supported by Ledger, the secure way to buy, exchange, and grow your crypto. From beginner to an expert trader, Ledger has everything you need to buy and grow your crypto securely, all in one place. Reclaim power over your money. Learn more at ledger.com. Hi, Briefing listeners. Mark here. Today and for the next few weeks, we'll be dropping our new podcast, FT Weekend, into this feed every Saturday. It's a show that brings the best of our award-winning weekend journalism into audio form, with everything from culture and food and the arts to nuanced questions and big ideas. We hope you like it. You can subscribe in your podcast app of choice by searching for FT Weekend. Hi, I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Thank you for finding your way here for the first episode, the very first, of FT Weekend. This is a showcase. It's a showcase of the stories and ideas inside the life and arts journalism at the Financial Times. Regular readers of FT Weekend might know what that means. You'll hear about art, food, travel, style, film, and also we'll take you places, places you're curious about and places you may not have known you wanted to go. And if you're new to the Financial Times and don't know much about FT Weekend, stay tuned. I have a lot of people to introduce you to. And then all of a sudden you're number one and then what? Where are you going now? If you feel like you have to have something, you'll die if you walk away from it. If you saw it on somebody else's arm, it would cause you physical pain. You should just buy it in that moment. The conditions were corrosive. The weather was terrible. And the, and even the water ran salty from the taps. So it's a house haunted by its origin myth. In this episode, we'll dig into a strange and petty phenomenon with our architecture and design critic, Edwin Hethcote, and then hear tips on how to thrift for your home from my colleague, Madison Derbyshire. Before that, for our first story, I speak to two of the world's most revered chefs, but it's not about what you'd expect. We're talking about their quest to do good in an increasingly troubled world. In New York City, there's a restaurant so popular that even if someone famous calls day of to make a reservation, okay, Jimmy Fallon just walked in. They get seated at the bar. He reached out. He really wanted the diner before we could have it. So he's at the bar top. The host of the Tonight Show can't get a seat in the dining room, and that can happen when your wait list is fifty thousand people long. Eleven Madison Park has been one of the top restaurants in the world for more than a decade. It has three Michelin stars, and in 2017, it was actually awarded World's Best Restaurant. Its chef, Daniel Hume, is known as this culinary genius, one of the true greats, and he's only 45. He dropped out of school at 14 to become a competitive cyclist in Switzerland, and when he got injured, he went into food. Okay. All right, let's do it. I visited Hume a few times at 11 Madison Park for a story I wrote for FT Weekend magazine. The link is in the show notes. When I first met him, I was surprised. He wasn't some intense celebrity chef like some scary guy larger than life. He was tall, maybe 6'4", but he was soft-spoken and warm, and he had this familiarity to him. It was like he was an old friend I'd never met before. Sort of a soft power. The piece was about chefs grappling honestly with what it means to be good and to do good and how that's changed since the pandemic. I visited Hume because in May, he hit the food world with a pretty big announcement. 11 Madison Park was going entirely plant-based. 
as an environmental choice. Vegan. It's the first restaurant of its caliber to do so. And so why not put the creativity that we have to make that future more delicious right. and more magical mm-hmm. and more exciting? It's exciting to eat yeah. vegetables. But Hume's search for a new direction actually started years ago after winning World's Best Restaurant. Before the win, he says that he and his staff had this collective goal, be the best. They were all aligned. It gave them structure. And then all of a sudden you're number one, and then what? Where are you going now? And now that was achieved, and now everyone had a different idea. Right. What's next? I got pulled in so many different directions, and it was really, really hard for me. Whom hadn't quite come to an answer by the time the pandemic hit, but at that point, 11 Madison Park had a bigger problem than purpose anyway. They had to survive. Like so many restaurants, they had to lay off staff, they had prohibitive bills, they were talking to bankruptcy lawyers. And a lot of restaurants in the city stayed afloat for those months by feeding hungry New Yorkers. The government gave them a little money to cook meals. Whom used his own nonprofit, Rethink Food, to cook meals in his kitchen and deliver them to people in need. I just started to feel like, oh my God. That's why I was telling you about the number one and how yeah. that felt empty. And now I'm connecting with food in a whole new way. Mm-hmm. In the magic, the way I felt the magic for food many, many years. And I kind of lost it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I see these people like coming up to me and saying, oh my God, this is like the best meal I've ever had on mm-hmm. the street. You know, $3 meal that costs to work. Yeah. I was invited to try 11 Madison Park in August. And the meal was what I can only describe as a four and a half hour long fever dream. A meal there now, as before, is up to 12 courses and costs $335 per person. But now it's all plants, and it includes a donation of five meals to Rethink. Their biggest performance was a beet, which was confit, dehydrated, smoked, grilled, and then baked in a nest of herbs over three days. And then it was cracked open in a clay pot at our table, unearthed from the nest, and plated. It was wild. That night, Hume looked really happy. Every time I looked up, he was sitting at a different table, talking to a different guest. He seemed to be basking in the glow of a risky bet that had paid off. I visited a few weeks later, and Hume brought me into the kitchen. Putting two top. Three. He pointed to a prominent row of glass door refrigerators. They were in front of us like display cases. Can I ask you one question? Please. Um, can you tell me what this looked like when you were serving meat? You see these uh, glass refrigerators that used, they were actually built to um, dry age uh, our duck, which was a signature dish. You know, people would come in the kitchen and see these ducks and be excited about the process. And sort of one night when I went on a run during the pandemic in Central Park, um, I had sort of this vision of these windows post-pandemic, and it became these uh, beets that we're um, baking in these clay pots. Um, But sort of like, that's sort of the window into the restaurant. It's a very different window. It's a very different window, yeah, Yeah, but I'm much happier now. You know, not every restaurant has the luxury of charging $335 for a meal. Whom has a platform and power? Most chefs don't. 
They have to pick and choose how to do good or even if they can afford to. They can't just go plant-based. A lot of them are still trying to give their employees health insurance. Whom kept referring to that switch as a responsibility? As a chef, I've, I've been seeing the food system being broken for a long time. Mm. And I've been guilty myself of kind of turning an eye. Yeah. Uh, turning, you know, what do you call it? A blind eye or yeah. something. We're all, we've all been We're guilty, all guilty of ignoring it. And if the world celebrates me as a pushing the boundaries of culinary, I, there's no way I can do what I did before. Yeah. Because that's not pushing anything. The world does not need another preparation mm. of our duck. It just doesn't. I mean, what could be the trickle-down impact of what you're doing? What can chefs do who are still trying to make ends meet? I do believe that this is changing completely. The com- this, this, What we've done has opened up doors mm-hmm. for others. I mean, look, Alice Waters, one of the most important restaurants, in my opinion, in the history of this country. Yeah. He's speaking here about the legendary founder of the restaurant, Chez Panisse, in Berkeley, California. She popularized the farm-to-table movement. Alice Waters is the original champion of buying your produce locally, organically, and in season. She's the reason farmers markets are cool. Well, first of all, don't have any preconceptions of what you're going to cook before you go. Okay. (laughs) So you go with a completely open mind. That's Waters herself, the matriarch of doing good. When I spoke with her recently, virtually, I couldn't help but ask her first to take me to the farmer's market. I always say I'm looking for fruits and vegetables that look back at me, asking me, (laughs) please, (laughs) I'm so beautiful, (laughs) buy me. Here's a woman who did the thing Whom is trying to do. She created a profound shift in the food world, and it has trickled down. This month marks 50 years since Waters started Chez Panisse, and I wanted to know where someone who's really done it goes next. We have to have food to live. It's a universal, and so is education. She wants to change how the whole country eats, and that's a big endeavor, and it felt like she was racing a clock. In her mind, the most efficient use of her power— is to get food education into schools as early as possible and feed students healthy, organic school lunches from kindergarten. I feel an urgency. If we don't teach the next generation the values they need to live on the planet together, we will not succeed in addressing climate Mm -hmm. or hunger. A lot of people have failed in this fight. Big food conglomerates have a stronghold over what public schools serve. But Waters believes she can do it. She's become a very effective lobbyist. So here's what she's doing. She's running her edible schoolyard program to teach students to garden, cook, and compost. She's working with the whole University of California system to group food into their carbon neutrality goals, which she thinks could be a model. She's opening her own Institute for Edible Education at UC Davis. And she says she's writing a book that proves you actually can provide local healthy lunches at school. And that is something that nobody believes because of the indoctrination of the fast food industrial system. We think we can't do it. And I guess I'm 
saying we can. I wonder when talking with Waters and whom, what it means to be a towering figure in an industry, to wax lyrical about your goals, to be an idealist, whether that has value. So I asked her. I watched an interview somewhere with you, and the interviewer said, do you think of yourself as an absolutist? And you said, I don't think of myself as an absolutist. I think of myself as an idealist. And I'm curious what it means to you to be an idealist. I guess it means that something can always get better. And I'm just constantly trying to push myself to be incredibly open-minded. I cannot be open-minded about the purity of food. I insist on it. But the way that it is cooked and the biodiversity of the world and the production of food is so immense. How could anybody stay firmly in one place? I can't. I can't. I guess I'm an idealist that is always open to a greater perfection, a greater beauty. And as for Daniel Hume, he's also not standing in one place. It's unlikely either of them will ever feel done. And how could you? There's so much to do. I have one more quick question, which is just like, you were saying that before this pandemic and you got to the top and felt like you had lost some purpose. and, And now you've done this thing. And the fact that it succeeded and the fact that the wait list is so long and like, first of all, is that giving you the satisfaction that you may not have felt before. Yeah, it's it's and, unbelievable. Yeah. It's bigger than the restaurant. Yeah. And I think that's why Chez Panisse is so important because Chez Panisse is much bigger. And so I I did stand on that stage. That was my decision and, and it was been overwhelming and a little bit also um, scary now. I feel, I feel like my, I have my work cut out for myself. <laughs> yeah, totally. you're, saying, you're saying that, oh yeah, now this has been successful, but this hasn't succeeded yet. You know, yeah. we've done one menu, one season. Yes, it's, it's a blessing that people are reacting the way they do, but we have to go really deep with this and we're just scratching the surface. While these chefs struggle with the idea of how to do the most good, I've got another story from FT Weekend about the opposite, doing bad. About how sometimes interesting and beautiful things come from acts that are actively petty and mean. A homeowner who puts up a big wall in their garden because they hate their neighbor. Or on another scale, a millionaire who erects an entire building out of revenge. In Buenos Aires, there's a skyscraper called the Edificio Cavanaugh the Kavanaugh Building. It was built in the 1930s, an imposing structure overlooking the Plaza San Martin, and it's an Art Deco masterpiece. But the building has a hidden story. It was the result of a kind of a doomed love affair between two young people. One of them was called Corinna Kavanaugh. That's Edwin Hefkett, our architecture and design critic. She fell in love with the scion of a very wealthy family, an old money family. The mother put a stop to the relationship because of the class difference, really. And Corinna Kavanagh kind of kept this burning in her heart. 
and uh, built a skyscraper, actually. When it went up, Corinna's building was celebrated as the tallest in Latin America. But she really built it in revenge. The family disapproved of her as new money. And this new money skyscraper blocked the view that their mansion had of their private church. The building is 31 stories, and it's a funny shape, sort of triangular, with a tall tower sticking out of the center. It sends a pretty clear message. It was a kind of a finger, a middle finger to the family. I mean, that's what the building looks like. It's a tower coming out of a bigger block. The Kavanaugh building is a classic spite house. Edwin wrote about this phenomenon of spite architecture, and the piece is in our show notes. I think in a way we're all interested in the stories behind buildings. You know, we're, we're all kind of intrigued in the personalities and the histories of particularly curious looking buildings. You know, how did it come to be like that? And the Spite House uh, phenomenon really is a, is a building that's built specifically to make a neighbor's life less pleasant. You know, I was very struck by how many examples in your piece of revenge architecture spite houses there were from Massachusetts, which is where I grew up. Yeah, absolutely. The more you look into the subject, the more Massachusetts crops up. And I guess it is to do with that long history of uh, of population. It does seem to be a particularly uh, US a phenomenon, the spite house. There's something in the American uh, 19th century in particular that they seem to flourish. I suppose it was a kind of free-for-all, you know, the development at the time. It wasn't as regulated as it is in other cities in old Europe. People were much freer to build and, and they were building fast. They were building to make quick bucks. I guess the conditions were right. In Newbury, Massachusetts, right off the main road, there's an iconic rose pink house alone in a field. It stands stark against a big sky. It looks like a postcard. They call it the Pink House. It's a rather beautiful looking building, but the images which have this kind of Edward Hopper-esque uh, uh, quality to them probably betray a more alienating <laughs> environment. The story is that a couple were splitting up and the wife, as a condition of the divorce, demanded that her husband build an exact replica of the house they were living in at the time, so she wouldn't lose out. So the husband built the house, but he built it on a salt marsh. It was borderline uninhabitable. The conditions were corrosive, the weather was terrible, and, the, and even the water ran salty from the taps, apparently. So it's a house haunted by its origin myth. It seems like all spite architecture, I mean, it's in the name, but it's just so mean. <laughs> and I'm wondering, like, are there some qualities to these buildings that you see across them? Are there things in common that these spaces have? That's a really interesting question. And I think one of the odd things is how resilient these spite houses have proved. So many of them survive. What's interesting is the way these, these narratives inscribe themselves into the fabric of the city. In a way, the stories are incredibly resilient. And I wonder often whether a lot of the stories that you know that we're relating here are, are, are really 100% true. There's always a kind of level of urban myth because people attribute certain qualities to strange buildings that can't quite be explained. And then that a kind of myth wraps itself around why it looks like that. Right. The Edificio Cavana we were talking about in Buenos Aires is, is, is an example of a building that is really rather beautiful. And that beauty came from a place of hatred. The conditions around a building can change radically through history. And I think we look at things now with different eyes to, to how they would have been looked at 150 years ago. 
And speaking of looking at things differently over time, I have a bunch of these old candle holders. You know those iron ones with the handles that Ebenezer Scrooge probably carries to bed? They're officially called chamber sticks, and my friends make fun of me for it because I collect them, but I don't quite know why. There's something romantic to the idea, I think, that they could have existed 150 years ago for someone who actually needed them to provide light. I do ask myself how they fit into the broader aesthetic of my apartment. Like, what is my style? I think the closest I've gotten to answering that is boho modern with a Dickensian streak. But it's a big question, and I know a lot of us have it, so I've turned to my colleague Madison Darbyshire, who's done a lot of thrifting. I mean, being in the market <laughs> in Lille was kind of like chasing after a Tasmanian devil, like in a jungle <laughs> of <laughs> bric-a-brac. <laughs> Madison is our U.S. investment correspondent and an FT Weekend regular. A few years ago, she spent some time with the famous interior designer Matilda Gode in Lille, France, at an antiques market. She was like looking for antiques to furnish her home and to kind of upsell to other people in London and she has an amazing eye but what that means is her eye is moving at like 90 miles an hour and I was just trying to keep up and and keep an eye on her in the crowd because there was just no finding finding her if I left I definitely learned a lot and I hear her voice sometimes when now if I'm looking at a flea market in Brooklyn or poking through an antique store I can hear her her little wisdoms so what is her voice saying to you it's really important to visualize the thing that you are thinking about buying in terms of the environment it's going to live in. Because something could look really cool in an antiques market. <laughs> like some antiques markets have life-size croissants. <laughs> <laughs> like there's a lot of random shit. But you have to really think, does this item look cool in this environment? And is it going to look, the word she uses is grand. So is it going to look really grand if you bring it back and try and stick it in a modern apartment? Like grandmotherly, not yeah, grand. Like, like old lady-like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and no offense to old ladies, my whole apartment probably looks like a, a woman of advanced years lives there. <laughs> but you have to kind of say, is this going to look fresh and cool and charming in the space or is it going to look dated and tacky? You have to sit in every chair that you want to buy. Mm. If you're buying a table, you should bring a chair up to the table and sit at the table to make sure the heights are right. If you're thinking about buying a dresser, you open every drawer. She's very tactile, so mm. she touches everything. If you're buying a chandelier, have somebody hold it up to ceiling height for you because you're only ever going to see the bottom of the light. Right. So you want to make sure the bottom looks good. Yeah. The other thing, I just want to add one more thing mm -hmm. Matilda said that I think about a lot, is that if you if you feel like you have to have something, you'll die if you walk away from it. If you saw it on somebody else's arm, it would cause you physical pain. <laughs> you should just buy it in that moment. But if you're not sure, you can walk away from it. And if it's still there at the end of the day, it's meant to be. And if it's not there, it just wasn't meant to be. And Madison just moved to New York and is writing another piece about going to Brimfield Market in Massachusetts to furnish her new home. It's America's oldest outdoor antiques flea market, and it's huge. What does your home look like now? Like, how are you putting these lessons into practice? Did you <laughs> buy the croissant? <laughs> my little Brooklyn one-bedroom does not have room for the croissant, but maybe <laughs> one day. My apartment probably looks a little bit like an old English countryside granny lives there. I have a wicker elephant end table that I bought on Craigslist from Coney Island, and 
a mermaid portrait that I bought at Brimfield and this really great old dining room table that used to be an oyster shucking table in Maine and was in the same family for five generations. And that's going to be the table that I get to have dinner parties at (laughs) in my new life. I moved into a new place in the pandemic too. And I just love it very much. And because I love it, I've put a few things up but I'm almost scared to put the nail in the wall for some things because I just want them to be in the right place. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. Houses are evolving things and design changes. Yeah. It's okay to make mistakes and you can paint your house. And if you don't like it, you just paint it another color and the world will keep turning. And that's it. That's the end of our very first show. We would love to hear what you think. You can write to us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. And if you know of any iron candlesticks, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Lila Rath. Please subscribe and tell your friends. And we'll be back here every Saturday to bring you more of the best of our FT Weekend journalism. Next Saturday is September 11th, and that's 20 years on from 2001. We'll be hearing from the real estate developer who took out a 99-year lease on the Twin Towers two months before they fell, and what he's done since. And also, my colleague John Boone was in Kabul just last month. He'll bring us into Afghanistan's final days of freedom, and what's been lost. You can read the stories we mentioned through the links in our show notes. You can also find a special offer for an FT Weekend subscription there, and at ft.com slash weekendpodcast. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. FT Weekend is made by George Drake Jr., who's our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our assistant producer. Breen Turner is our sound engineer with original music by Metaphor Music. Cheryl Brumley is our executive producer. We've had special help from Josh Gabbert-Doyen and invaluable editorial direction from Renee Kaplan. We'll find each other again next week. As the world changes, so does the tech we need to secure what is important to us. And if you own crypto assets, you need a safe place to store your funds. At Ledger, we provide a secure and straightforward way to buy, exchange and grow your crypto. Whether you're an expert trader or just starting on your crypto journey, Ledger has everything you need all in one place. Ledger, the place to buy and grow your crypto securely. Reclaim power over your money. Learn more at ledger.com.